Many of you that sit here struggle to sleep. I know I've spoken to many of you. Sleep is something that we should as Christians view as being a gift from God. However, many of us have missed out on this gift. Whether we've tossed and turned as a result of stress for a test or you know, pouring your tears into your pillow because you feel enslaved by insomnia. Many people fail to get a good night of sleep, whether it's psychological or personal issues that cause us to be restless. Many times there seem to be spiritual reasons for us to not be able to sleep. At least this is what Psalm 4 would indicate to us. So last week we, we heard Matt preach from Psalm 3. And Psalm 3 could be seen almost as a, a morning psalm, a psalm that you can pray when you get up in the morning. And Psalm 4, is, it's, it accompanies Psalm 3 as an evening psalm, or a psalm that can be sung or read before we lie down. Now, although Psalm 4 is another psalm of lament, it can also be a psalm of trust or confidence, as David both laments his situation, but also shows his trust and confidence in God. Although David aches with hurt, he expresses that he trusts that God will not abandon him, even though in this immediate situation it might feel like that. The rebellion and treason of his son is in the background, as we heard in Psalm 3. So for those of you who weren't here last week, David's own son is currently pursuing to kill him. David's own son turned the people around David against David as an act of treason against his father. Psalm 4 can be seen as David spending another night under the stars, allowing Absalom's forces to pursue him another day. So as we read and listen to the message of Psalm 4, let us have the teaching of last week in the back of our minds. The, the, the title for today is Rest in Your Faithful Savior. And we'll look at the sermon in four different parts. And we'll actually look at how David approaches God by seeing God as his rest, how God provides David with rest, and what we can learn from how David approaches God, as well as how David speaks to his enemies and those around him. So the first point I want us to look at this morning is that God answers the prayers of the hurting. God answers the prayers of the hurting. So when we read Psalm 4, in light of Psalm 3, we clearly see that David is experiencing a very dark time. Circumstances beyond his control is busy overwhelming him. His, I mean, his own son is trying to kill him, and he doesn't have anyone to turn to but God. And this is what we see in the first verse, if you look at your Bibles. We see a clear sense of distress in David's writing. Answer me when I call to you. David is pleading to God when he prays. Yet David knows something about the God he's speaking to. He says, answer me when I call to you, God of my righteousness. What does David mean when he says that it is the God of his righteousness? When we look at the Hebrew phrase being used here, it assumes God sitting as a judge above the situation that David finds himself in. And David is actually saying that God has already pronounced a verdict of righteous. David is basically saying that God has already seen and judged him as the righteous one in this situation, and therefore he can rest. The righteousness David is speaking here is not God's righteousness, but actually 
his own righteousness declared by God. What David is saying here is, O God, who knows me and has proclaimed me to be righteous, answer me when I call to you. We can see a great confidence in this first verse as David approaches God. Why does David have this confidence? Well, he tells us in the very next line, You have given me relief from my distress. The word for distress here, again, I would say the English fails us because the Hebrew word here gives us the sense of being in a corner, being claustrophobic. David is backed into a corner. His circumstances are causing him to feel hopeless, as if there's no way out. Yet, as the walls are closing down this time, David has confidence that God will smash the walls, as he has done in the past. Because the Lord has already given him relief from his distress. The Lord has taken him out of a tough spot, has already taken him out of a tough corner in the past. David is confident in the work that God has done in the past, that God will do it now again. I can trust and hope in God because God has smashed down the walls enclosing on me in the past, is what David is telling us. And David ends this plea in verse 1 by asking the Lord's grace and for the Lord to hear his prayer. Now I find this phrase very interesting because David isn't approaching God as a, as a little kid tucking at God's pants. He's not like... Listen to me, give me attention. David is saying Shema, the same word which God calls the Hebrew nation to listen to him. It's more than just a call to hear. It's a call to respond and act to what's being asked of them or being asked of God in this case. So while this expression might be presumptuous on our case, you know, David approaching God and almost telling him, act, we can see that David approaches God with a sense of familiarity, knowing that God has acted in the past and asking God to do the same. Lord, listen. Lord, relieve me from my distress. Act. Help me, Lord. He doesn't have anybody else to turn to. David knows he's God and asks God not only to hear, but to act. How many, many of you this morning, I'm sure, might feel the same as David is feeling in this first verse. Psychological, physical, or maybe spiritual troubles causing you to feel like you're stuck in a corner, stuck in a tough spot. As we look at David, we see him making five requests in this first verse alone. Answer me, vindicate me, free me, be gracious to me, hear my prayer, Lord. David needs the Lord to give him space to deliver him. Ultimately, what David needs is what he knows he doesn't deserve. Grace and mercy from God. Why does he think he can get this? Well, because he is God's child. He's confident that God will hear him. And that if it is the will of God, that he will receive mercy. He stands on the character of God, what God has done in the past. The righteous God, who has acted in the past, will act righteously now and will act this time again. God is faithful. And David knows that. If you're sitting here and you're a child of God, you have the same promise. Like David, coming to God in familiarity, we can boldly enter into God's throne room and make our requests known to God. We have the word of God that shows us He's faithful. He's dependable. We can trust Him. We can also know God. 
we see David as a familiarity with God. We can be familiar with God because we can get to know Him with His Word. Reading God's Word causes us to know Him, causes us to be familiar with who He is. That's why it's so important for us as Christians to read the Word of God. Not only to know the promises that God makes to His people like David knows, but also to get to know God in a more intimate way. That when we're in a tough corner, when we're stuck, we can be like, God, you are faithful. I can see from your scriptures, you are the deliverer of your people. You have sent Christ to deliver me. Do this again, Lord. Help me, Lord. After David establishes that God answers the prayers of the hurting in this first verse, he now strangely turns to those pursuing him. Which is the second point of our sermon this morning, is that God honors the pure in heart. So David transitions very quickly from shouting out, crying out to God, showing us that God answers the prayers of the hurting, almost turning away from God, turning around and speaking to his pursuers, telling them that God honors the pure in heart. So last week we saw that David was in physical danger. Psalm 3 told us that Absalom, David's son, is running after him, trying to kill him. In Psalm 4, This still continuing, but that's not the thing David is lamenting. If you follow with me in verse 2, you'll see that David's enemies have turned his honor into shame. I'm sure many of you can think of examples where that has happened in your life, where people around you have slandered or gossiped about you and turned your honor into shame. And that's what is happening here. We know Absalom spoke to the people around David, as Matt told us last week, and turned the council and the people around David against him. David is condemning his enemies for slandering him and loving vain words and seeking after lies. Again, we have that word vain words, like the enemies of God meditating on vain words. We see these enemies, God's enemies and David's enemies, loving these vain words on which they meditate. And they actually use these words to slander David. It's interesting that this seeking after lies could also be interpreted as worshipping false gods. So there is a dual meaning in this text. Not only are these people slandering David and turning his honor into shame, but they're also turning God's honor into shame by worshiping false idols. And whichever interpretation you prefer there, the point stays that these people who are pursuing David love vain words and they do not honor God, either by slandering David or by worshiping false idols. And so we've looked at the Psalms. A natural response here would be David praying to God to crush his enemies, right? David asking God to to kill his enemies because they're pursuing him. Yet what we find from verse 2 to verse 5 is David actually asking his enemies to reconsider what they're doing. David provides his enemies with a three-part strategy on how to have a pure heart before God. Basically telling him that, You can do these three things, and if you do them, you'll be honored by God. You'll no longer be my enemy, but you'll rather be my friend. So let's look at the three ways in which David tells his enemies that they can have a pure heart, as well as us today, how we as Christians today may have a pure heart. So firstly, knowing that the Lord has set the godly apart. It's interesting to see that David's first strategy to his enemies is that they should know that the Lord 
has set the godly apart for himself. Because we belong to God as his people, we can boldly come to him, as we saw in verse 1. Yet David tells his enemies that they should know something. And this is more than just an intellectual knowing. This knowing that David refers to is the sort of knowledge that a person who is married for 30 years would have. It's the sort of knowledge that grows. Some of you have been married for, several, uh, for some time, but just think about how you knew your wife when you first met and how you know her now, the things that you didn't know about her when you first met, the things that you know now. That's the sort of relationship that David tells us and his enemies in this context that they should have with God a growing knowledge of God. And this is the first part of having a pure heart before God. It's not just a knowledge of God, but a growing, trusting knowledge in God and in who God is. What does it mean, though, that God has set the godly apart for himself? Well, throughout the Old Testament, we see that Yahweh is the God of Israel. He has set a people apart for himself. He has bound himself in covenant to the Old Testament Jews. And in the New Testament, we see that we as believers have been given the Spirit of God. We as Christians are set apart from this world. The Lord has given us His Spirit, and the world does not have this. We see in the book of Romans 8, for example, that if anybody does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Him. So we as Christians are set apart in a special way from the rest of the world, in the same way that the Jews were God's special people, they were His treasured people, We as Christians have been set apart. And we can know this because we have been given the Spirit of God to prove that. Spurgeon speaks about the setting apart as God viewing us as His personal and protected treasure. Which is something we find in 1 Peter 2 as well. As Peter tells us that we are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. We have been given mercy. God has called us out of darkness into light. So not only has God given us His Spirit, but God has also given us His Son for our sins. When you are God's treasure, when you are God's possession, God gives you His Spirit to guide you, and God has given you His Son as a sacrifice. Do we need any more evidence than this that we are God's treasure, we are God's set-apart people, than by God giving us His Spirit and His Son to be our possession. We have a great confidence in this. But it's important for us to remember that it's not good people or seemingly good Christians who are set apart for God's own possession. It's the godly. And the English here obscures the word here. The the Hebrew word here is hasad, which, which is a very loaded word in Hebrew. But this basically means it's a person who fulfills the covenant obligations that God has established with His people. God isn't looking for people who look godly or people who do good things. He's looking for a people who observe with covenant loyalty and faithfulness His commands and His word. It is this loyalty and faithfulness to the covenant with Yahweh that the psalmist has in view here. God has set those sorts of people apart. God has set the faithful, the covenant 
faithful people, those who are loyal to him apart for his own possession. And this leads to David's second piece of advice. Do not sin. Firstly, God honors the pure in heart. Secondly, we see David telling them, be angry. Do not sin. Just personally and experientially, many of us can look at this and be like, yeah, when I'm angry, I I typically sin. (laughs) When I'm angry, my emotions run high. I struggle to bite my tongue. I say stuff I shouldn't say. I do stuff I shouldn't do. Anger typically leads to sin. But we find a great example of anger not leading to sin in the Gospels. In all of the Gospels, we find Jesus entering the temple, seeing the temple becoming a merchant. He calls it a den of robbers. Place where they sell goods in God's own house. Yet what does Jesus do before he overthrows the tables? We're told that Jesus stops and he weaves a whip to chase them out. Probably would have taken a few hours to weave a whip. So Jesus doesn't act on impulse, doesn't act on anger. We see us sitting down, doesn't respond immediately out of anger. There's a restrained, godly response to the things which anger us. And this is what David tells us. Be angry, do not sin. Get control of your anger, bite on your tongue. Or better yet, follow with me in verse 4. Get alone with God, on your bed. Ponder in your own heart and be silent. On your bed is often a place where reflection and meditation is done. We see this throughout the Old Testament. Micah tells us that the wicked lie on their bed hatching evil plans. Psalm 36 also tells us that the bed is where the wicked plot and where they make evil plans. Yet interesting, in, in this psalm, we are told that while the wicked use their beds to lay plans on how to turn against God or how to hatch plans, the godly are to sit on their beds and meditate on the word of God. Where the wicked use their times meant for sleep to hatch plans against God's people, God's people should meditate and rest in the word of God. Here we see the psalmist counseling his opponents to take the time that they usually take to meditate wicked plans on their beds and to reconsider the consequences of their actions in light of God's covenant with us. Getting quietly before God, getting quiet before God and meditating on His Word will clear our heads. It it removes the fog of anger or the restlessness that we experience as Christians, as humans. Thirdly then, after David tells his enemies that they are to know God and they are not to sin, he now calls them to action. Offer righteous sacrifices in righteousness and trust in the Lord. We see that not any sacrifice will suffice. Only sacrifice done in righteousness or right sacrifices. We see throughout the scriptures that a right sacrifice only comes from a right heart. Sacrifice that is pleasing to God, we're told, is a broken spirit. We're also told that the broken and those humble in heart are those who present pleasing sacrifices to God. We must trust God. It's not merely enough to acknowledge that God exists, that God is there. We must trust Him and present sacrifices in that manner. What does this mean? I think for many of us as New Testament Christians, we find this phrase very interesting. Making sacrifices to God. I mean, we're not like the Jews. We're not going to present bulls 
and animals to God as burnt offerings. In Romans 12.1, we find Paul writing saying, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. Firstly, we see that God desires our bodies or our whole being, everything that we have, as a sacrifice. God desires us to fully surrender to Him. But what does this look like practically? And if you forget everything that I've said today, I think this is probably the one thing that I would like us to take from this, is what does right sacrifices look like? And this is something that I learned this week, interestingly enough, as I was preparing for this, is what does it look like for us as New Testament, New Covenant believers to present sacrifices to God? So for those of you making notes, write down Hebrews 10 so you can go read this later today. But Hebrews 10 tells us what it looks like to present sacrifices and burnt offerings before God. We are told that we are to draw near to God with a sincere heart, with a full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope that we profess, for He is promised, is faithful. Let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. If we keep deliberately on sinning, after we have received the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sin is left. So what does it look like to give a sacrifice to God? Well, it means to draw near to God. Prayer and spending time in the Lord's Word is a sacrifice unto the Lord. It's worship unto God. Secondly, holding fast with confidence that He will complete what He started. Trusting in God, having confidence in God is a form of sacrifice. Thirdly, spurring on our brothers and sisters is a sacrifice pleasing unto the Lord. Not neglecting to gather together, as is the habit of some, is a sacrifice unto the Lord. You're sacrificing the time that you could spend doing anything you want to gather with the saints of the Lord. And finally, not deliberately sinning after gaining a knowledge of the truth. Actively turning away from sin is a sacrifice unto the Lord. So we see here in Hebrews 10 that Offering a sacrifice to God comes as a result of the work of Christ, but it enables us to draw near to God and trust in God. It enables us to flee from sin, which was the habit before we were Christians. It enables us to serve one another and meet and gather together as God's people. And this is why when we read Hebrews 13 towards the end of the chapter, it tells us that through Jesus... Let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise. The fruit of lips that openly profess His name. And do not forget to do good and to share with others. For with such sacrifices God is pleased. And I found this very confronting this week to see that our sacrifices unto God is not some individual thing that we just do. In every instance in the book of Romans where they speak about sacrifices, it's done within the community. We offer sacrifices to God by gathering, by spurring each other on. And in Hebrews 13, we see that sharing with one another sacrifices which are pleasing to God. We share in our sacrifices 
to God. So if you, are to want, if you are to have a pure heart before God and to present right sacrifices before God, it's imperative that we do that within the community of faith as well as individually. But I think in a culture as we live like today, we view our sacrifices or our offerings to God as just this personal thing we do. If we desire to have a pure heart before God, it needs to happen within the bounds of community. God honors the pure in heart. Thirdly then, as David turns from speaking to God in the first verse to those pursuing him in the verses 2 to 5, we now find David speaking in verses 6 and 7, speaking to those who we could almost say are spiritual pessimists, those with a, a downcast attitude asking, is God really good? What I think is going on here is that as David is fleeing from Jerusalem with Absalom seeking to kill him, he's got his friends, he's a company, group of people, people who are following David out of Jerusalem, coming to David saying, David, you are God's king. We have followed you. Why are we fleeing? Why do we not have any possessions? Who will show us any good? Has God forgotten about us? Are we still the people of God? Are you actually our king still? David responds to this with a simple prayer. Let the light of your face shine on us, Lord. Last week we read the great benediction in number six, which says, May the Lord bless you and protect you. May the Lord make his face to shine on you and be gracious to you. This is what David is asking for the Lord. He's asking for the face of the Lord to shine upon him. David is asking for God to be faithful to his promises. We've seen that the Lord has set David apart. David trusts God. David is simply asking, Lord, can I please experience the promises that you have made? Turn your face to me that I may experience the things which you have promised your people. If you're a Christian, the promises in the scriptures are yours. Promises that you'll be made holy. Promises that you'll be sanctified. Promises that you'll enjoy rest or communion with Christ. These are promises that have been made to you if you're in Christ. If you're currently not experiencing the rest of God, or you're struggling with sanctification, lay a hold of God in prayer and ask Him, Lord, make your face shine upon me. Lord, I need to experience these promises that you have made to your people. David knew he was part of God's covenant people. David knew the promises that God made to his covenant people. And so David is asking to experience the light of God's face to shine upon him. And, and we can do the same as Christians. Now, many of us might think that if people that follow you out of Jerusalem as your son is trying to kill you, telling you, who will show us any good? David, we've left everything behind. Who will show us any good? Many of us might think, well, a natural human response would be, don't worry, God will provide. Or, follow me, I'm your king, God has made me your king, follow me and you'll be prosperous in, in a few months' time. Yet David reminds the people about God's covenant faithfulness. God himself is all that they need. And if you follow me in verse 7, we can see David hitting home that point. As David tells those around him in verse 7, Oh, to God, you have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine 
abound. The presence of God is all that we need. And it's better than anything we could ask or hope for in this life. David is essentially resting in the presence of God, which gives him more joy than any of the material blessings he could want. We know that David was the king. I mean, he had more wine and more grain than any of the people could think. And yet he's still saying, Your joy, Lord, you have put more joy in my heart than everything which I've left behind. John Calvin, speaking about this, says that David had more satisfaction in seeing the reconciled face of God beaming upon him than if he had possessed garners full of corn and cellars full of wine. Just the fact that God's face was shining upon David, that David could experience God's covenant blessings upon him, was greater than cellars full of wine and garners full of corn. The people that David is speaking to, the people that followed David out of Jerusalem, would have had possessions as well. Perhaps not grain and wine, but they would have forsaken all of their possessions to follow David. Yet David reminds them that the presence of God and the joy that comes in having the face of God shine upon them is greater than the possessions they might have left behind. I mean, we find ourselves in this situation as Christians quite often. Maybe we didn't forsake everything in following David, but many of us, we've forsaken all to follow Christ. Maybe friends, family, hobbies. Maybe you're not seeing the immediate good in denying yourself and following Christ. Perhaps you're sitting here today and saying, Lord, I did everything you asked. Why are you not showing me any good? I'm, I'm following Christ. I'm obeying His law. Why am I not experiencing what your word promises? To you I would appeal this morning that you should meditate on the word of God and ask for the Lord to shine His face upon you in a way that you can experience the blessings and the promises made to you as his child. I mean, Jesus promised us in Matthew 19, Jesus said that those who leave houses, brothers, sisters, fathers, mothers, wives, and children for his sake will receive a hundredfold in this life and in the life to come. Do we trust that God is faithful to his promises? Because if we did, we wouldn't grumble at the hardships we face in giving things up for Christ. If we truly believed that God would give us a hundredfold in this life and in the life to come, our attitude and emotions toward the things we have to depart of and the things we have to leave will not be one of grumbling, but rather one of joy. God has given us gladness and joy greater than any possession this world has to offer in giving us eternal life through the death of Jesus. He has given us the greatest good we could ever ask or imagine. So let us not grumble and ask who has shown us any good. Lord, why are you not showing me any good? I've left everything to follow Christ. Because He has. He has. He has given you the most good thing He possibly can in giving you Christ. And this ultimately leads us to our final point, which is that God gives rest to His people. David talked 
and spoke with God. He knelt in the Lord's presence. Nothing remains for David now than to sleep and rest. This verse in verse 8 tells us that we as the people can rest as we trust in God. We are set apart as the Lord's special possessions. We can plead for mercy and ask for the Lord to deliver us from our enemies. But we need to be reminded that our possessions, the things we have, the things we have around us, these things cannot be our security. We are not safe if we depend on the things around us for salvation and safety. We're only safe in the hands of the Lord. As David writes, You alone, Lord, make me live in safety. The Lord alone is David's true source of security. Locked doors, security systems, bodyguards, these will ultimately prove inadequate to keep us safe. Our safety comes from the Lord who never leaves us or for abandons us. Our safety and security are found in a Savior who said, I give them eternal life and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. We are safe. We can sleep resting in Christ. As we read this morning in Matthew 11, we see that we, we're not only safe. He's not only the one who keeps us safe, but he's the one who actually gives us the rest as well. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden. I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. He's not only the one who keeps us safe when we sleep, he's also the one who lays us down to sleep. His yoke is easy and his burden is light. He will never leave us nor forsake us. The only thing left for us as Christians to do then is to rest and trust in our Savior, Jesus. We see in verse 1 that David believes that God is a righteous God. In verse 3, we see that David views himself as being set apart. Verse 5, David tells us that he can trust in the Lord. He can seek the Lord's face. And in verse 7, trust in the provision of the Lord. And this ultimately leaves David with only one option. And that's to lie down for a good night's sleep, knowing that the Lord will keep him safe. And although this is a lament, and the psalmist concludes his expression of confidence in God in the midst of his great distress, he acknowledges that security only comes from the Lord. And we have a great New Testament model in Jesus. Similarly to David, he was slandered by the Jews and by the Greeks. He wasn't only betrayed by the people around him, but he was betrayed by his best friends. His own friend Judas gave him up and all of his followers departed when he died alone on the cross. Yet when Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane, sweating blood, he rested and trusted in God, saying, Not my will, but yours be done. I don't think there's a greater expression of trust than in the words of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. 
Not my will be done, Lord, but yours. I trust in you fully. No matter the turmoil, no matter if I die, I trust in you, God. Not my will, but yours be done. And we as Christians, we are all called to do the same. We saw today that God answers the prayers of the godly. We can therefore boldly enter into His presence, making our requests known to Him. We firstly saw that God is the one who delivers His people as He has done in the past. He will deliver us today. Yet as we seek to know God and grow in the knowledge of God, as we flee sin and as we present right sacrifices to God as individuals and as a community, we need to remember to seek the Lord's face and trust in His providence. We as Christians can lay hold of the promises of God made to His people and ask Him that we might experience them. And like David and like Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane, we can rest this evening. We can have a good night's sleep knowing that we have a faithful Savior in Jesus who through His death and resurrection made it possible for us to sleep securely and safe. Let's pray.